what I'd like to do in keeping with, um, I think, the intention of especially this gospel, the narrative nature of it, I do want to read another large section, and I, I want to read for us again, starting at verse 14, the whole chapter 1. Uh, it is God's word, and that it, this is what affects us, and so we'll just go ahead and read these 30-some verses, and then go back through and go through them a little more slowly. And, and actually, as I read it, I'm going to ask you to pay attention to, you know, the first verses 14 and 15 say, Now after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So, as I read through the chapter, make mental note of what his preaching does. I feel, it seems to me that this first chapter is really dense with the effects of the gospel. And we'll go through, I counted about eight different broad categories of what the gospel is able to do. But make a mental note or just take some notes, especially those first 14 verses, 14 through 28. You'll see several different um, events, miracles, and other things that the gospel clearly does. So I'll read through the whole chapter, and then we'll go back through it. I'll start at verse 16. As he was going along by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net in the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. Going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were also in the boat mending nets. Immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and went away up to follow him. They went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and began to teach. They were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority, not as the scribes. Just then there was a man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, saying, What business do we have with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet and come out of him. Throwing him into convulsions, the unclean spirit cried out with a loud voice and came out of him. They were all amazed, so that they debated among themselves, saying, What is this, a new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. Immediately the news about him spread everywhere into all the surrounding district of Galilee. And immediately after they came out of the synagogue, they came into the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law was lying sick with a fever, and immediately they spoke to Jesus about her. And he came to her and raised her up, taking her by the hand. And the fever left her, and she waited on them. When evening came, after the sun had set, they began bringing to him all who were ill and those who were demon-possessed. And the whole city had gathered at the door. And he healed many who were ill, of various diseases, and cast out many demons, and he was not permitting the demons to speak, because they knew who he was. In the early morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went away to a secluded place, and was praying there. Simon and his companions searched for him. They found him, and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. He said to them, Let us go somewhere else, to the towns nearby, so that I may preach there also, for that is what I came for. And he went into their synagogues throughout all Galilee, preaching and casting out the demons. And a leper came to Jesus, beseeching him, and falling on his knees before him, and saying, If you are willing, you can make me clean. 
Moved with compassion, Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I am willing, be cleansed. Immediately the leprosy left him and he was cleansed. And he sternly warned him and immediately sent him away. And he said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest, and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded as a testimony to them. But he went out and began to proclaim it freely and to spread the news around to such an extent that Jesus could no longer publicly enter a city, but stayed out in unpopulated areas, and they were coming to him from everywhere. So before we get into the, uh, the, the qualities of the gospel or the, um, the work of Jesus and what he does while he's here on earth, I do want to go through verses 14 and 15. I mean, they are really high watermarks, I think, of the book. I mean, because this is the beginning. I mean, the beginning is verse 1, the beginning of the gospel. But these two verses, um, after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So Mark starts Jesus' ministry in Galilee. The fact is, between verse 13 and 14 is probably about a year. And we know that from John's gospel. Remember in John, you have these first four chapters where Jesus is baptized and then he has a ministry. Remember chapter 2, he's in Cana of Galilee and he turns the water into wine. Then chapter 3, the Passover time, he goes back down to Jerusalem. That's where he meets Nicodemus. Nicodemus is chapter 3 of John. After he leaves Nicodemus, it says he had to go through Samaria, back up into Galilee, chapter 4. And chapter 4 is the woman at the well in Samaria. And then, let's just go there, chapter 4 of John, verse 1, because this gives us a little bit of insight into why Jesus is going to Galilee. Chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, okay, this, this actually undermines what I said a couple weeks ago, that some people say that John may have had a bigger ministry than Jesus. That can't be true based on this. He had more. Okay, so the Pharisees heard Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were. He left Judea and went away again into Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. And then he comes to Samaria. That's where he meets the woman at the well. So all that to say, uh, even though Mark has a lot of immediately's, he doesn't have an immediately here in verse 14. So it's, it's true. There's a time lapse between verse 13 and 14. And this is the, the year of Jesus' ministry prior to this uh, you know, bigger ministry in Galilee. And... When he comes into Galilee, he starts preaching the gospel. And we talked a couple weeks ago about what the gospel is. Of course, it means the good news. The good news of, it just in this context, that the time is fulfilled. The time is complete. It is here. It is, and this is just after a few verses earlier. We read Mark's description of Jesus, right? Heavens speak. The heavens are opened up. They're torn apart. God speaks from heaven that you are my son, I am well pleased. Immediately then he is tempted by the devil. So the point Mark's making for the hearers is 
this time is, is, this is it. This is a very historic, very important, very significant time. The kingdom of God is at hand. It's right here with us. Repent and believe in the gospel. So the repent language reminds us of John who preached repentance. It's a great summary of what is about to happen. It's like you understand the scene. The heavens have opened. Jesus is here. Repent and believe. He's arrived powerfully and and in glory. And that's what we see here in these first few verses of chapter 1. When he mentions the kingdom of God, sometimes you'll see that the kingdom of heaven, that's used, it's a phrase that's used often in the Gospels, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, mean the same thing. But if you think about a kingdom, what does a kingdom need to have to be a kingdom? Well, it needs a king. Anyone else? It needs a king. And it needs people. And it needs a third thing. It needs sort of a set of rules that the kingdom lives by. So just have the image in your mind. We, the kingdom has arrived. The king is here. His people are here. And he's going to tell us how the subjects are to act. So the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe. The other gospels, Matthew and Luke, I'll just read those for you. You don't need to flip there. The same uh, scene uh, they describe it in Matthew chapter 4, verse 14 to 17, it says, talks about Jesus' arrival for his ministry. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. Again, I'm reinforcing that the time is here. This was predicted. It was foreshadowed. It is here. To fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. So it's amazing. This is... Isaiah told us this was going to happen. The people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light. So this is it. The great light has come. These people are seeing it. And those who were sitting in the land in shadow of death, upon them a light dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's Matthew's account, or parallel versing. Uh, Luke, chapter 4, his description of this same section says, And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath. Okay, so Luke's account has Jesus first in Nazareth before he goes fully into Galilee. And Nazareth is considered a part of this region of Galilee, just south of the sea. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, and he opened the book and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. So all three of these synoptic gospels really build for us this accurate picture of of what is about to take place and what has been predicted by God through the prophet Isaiah in both those cases. Isaiah 9 in Matthew and Isaiah 61 in Luke. Okay, so this is the present kingdom of Jesus' arrival. By the way, there is another future kingdom, which is talked about later. We won't quote those verses, but Luke chapter 17 talks about the future kingdom that will ultimately come where all of us will see Christ at his second coming, ruling. Uh, 
Okay, so what I'd like to do at this point is let's look at, really focus on the next uh, 14 verses, verses 14 through 28, and you can help me here. I've got a list of eight different characteristics that immediately jump out. When the gospel is here, it has arrived, boom. What immediately do we see that the gospel and what Jesus himself is actually able to do? What's the first thing we see him doing? Calling disciples. disciples. He calls people to him. That's the first thing he does when he starts his ministry is he calls them. And that's a unique characteristic, too, about Mark. The disciples are almost always with Jesus throughout Mark. So you have Jesus, God, doing his work, and you also have a story when you go through this one time, you can just follow the story of the disciples, how they uh, are almost always present in this gospel. So there's a story of Jesus and a story of uh, the disciples. We can see Jesus' ministry proceed, and then you can see the disciples proceed as they learn or don't learn. Um, and we have the characteristics of the disciples that we'll see throughout the ministry. But the first thing is that he calls people to him. Immediate obedience. Yeah, great point. And John or Mark points that out. This this immediate immediately they followed him, and James and John, the poor dad there was working, and fortunately he had the servants there, the hired hands were still there to to pull up the slack. But yeah, they, in Mark's account, immediately picked up, and left him. Probably their inheritance. Uh, they were wealthy somewhat because they had servants. I know at that time, if you had servants, people working for you, you had a small business, I mean, you were considered relatively well off. So, yes, they probably had inheritance they were leaving. And So, think of that. I think sometimes servants means like a hireling versus, you know, a slave. Yeah. Yeah, we went through the whole slave, uh, use of the word slave in the New Testament. And yeah, this is not one of them. Yeah, this is like a, a hired hand. Or, um, well, they were getting paid. Yep. So when they left to follow Christ, was it was Christ already well known in the area? I mean, I just think about it logistically. I mean, partly it was the work of the Holy Spirit. I mean, mostly. Yes. It's not all, but well, came into my life and right. So, great question. Let's look at it because I I was going to go there. Yeah, Mark's version of the story sort of implies that this is when they first met him. Absolutely not, actually, because that whole first year of Jesus' ministry, the Peter and John were with Jesus. So this is not the first time they've met him. So let's actually look at that because it's, it's instructive, I think, to put it in context of you know, how, how the Lord worked in their life. So look at John chapter 1, verse 35 through 42. Did you know that, by the way, John and Jesus may have been cousins? Is that, is that not news to you? Okay. okay. Well, maybe we'll get to those verses. That, do you know why we think that they might be cousins? No, not, no, I'm not talking John the Baptist. I'm talking John the Apostle John. John the Gospel writer. 
Well, we'll get into that in a minute. I, it's interesting. I mean, it's never told us that in the Bible. You'd think if they were cousins, it would have been overtly mentioned, but it's not. But No, no. Let's look at John chapter one, and we can just look at that to show you that that was not the first time. Because uh, John's gospel, okay, we, we already remember Mark doesn't really follow an exact timeline. And you see it here in this first, between verse 13 and 14, the impression is it's sort of the next day, but it's not, it's a year. So Mark, it's accurate, but it doesn't follow timeline. John doesn't follow an exact timeline either. But when John says the next day we did this, it means the next day. Okay, because John was there. John's gospel was written by John. He was an eyewitness of everything. So when he says the next day, the next day, that, that is true. So if you look at John chapter 1, Jesus is baptized, essentially. John testifies, verse 32, I've seen the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven, and he remained upon him. I did not recognize him, but he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, He upon you see the Spirit descending. This is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. I myself have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. Now, verse 35, And again, the next day, John was standing with two of his disciples. So this is John the Baptist standing with two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus as he walked and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him, and they followed Jesus. And Jesus turned and saw them following and said to him, What do you seek? They said to him, Rabbi, which translated means teacher, where are you staying? He said, Come and you will see. So they came and saw that where they were staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He found first his own brother Simon and said to him, We found the Messiah, which translated means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Peter. The next day he purposed to go into Galilee, and he found Philip. And then he goes on to explain how he called Philip and then Nathaniel. And then on the way to Galilee, they stop at Cana for the first miracle. So... Uh, for sure, uh, Peter, Andrew, John, Philip, and Nathaniel were following Jesus in that first year of his ministry, witnessing the miracles he was performing, the miracle at Cana, the woman at the well, Nicodemus. So they, they were aware of Jesus' ministry. So they had an early sort of introductory phase where they learned of him, and Jesus ministered to them. But in Mark's scene here, Chapter 1, this is their calling. This is, this is when they said, okay, the Spirit moved in them and said, now you're, you're going with me. Now you're ministering with me. You're, you're on your way to becoming an apostle. So a little bit of a difference there. And they did have an early introduction to him. Does that answer the question someone asked about this? Yeah, so in this fir that first year, he goes up into Galilee, comes back down uh, into Israel to meet Nicodemus and then he goes back up again through uh, Samaria into Galilee and that's where he has probably a two-year ministry based on John's account versus appears to be one year when you read through Mark. Okay, before you leave John, I just want to flip. So that the point I want to make before we leave, uh, probably John, Peter, Andrew, and James Probably all four of those were disciples of John the Baptist. For sure, Andrew was, but probably because they were brothers and they were together a lot. 
all four of them were very familiar with John's ministry and may have been his disciples. If you just look at verse, chapter 3, verse 22, this is while they're in Jerusalem. After these things, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea, and there he was spending time with them and baptizing. John also was baptizing in Anon near Salem because there was much water there and people were coming and being baptized. And then I'll read this again, verse chapter 4 of John <coughs> explains why Jesus went into Galilee. One main reason was because he saw what was happening to John. John was taken in, into custody. Already the Pharisees, you know, we know why, what was behind that with Herod's wife and the daughter dancing and they asked for John's head on a platter. He had offended them greatly telling them, repent, you know, you're married, your brother's wife. Yeah. And uh, he didn't like, she didn't like that. And she was obviously a wicked person. I'm, I don't remember which account, but it's in Mark, actually, in Matthew 2, where the Herod says to the little girl or the young lady, I'll give you whatever you want, half my kingdom, because I'm so happy with your dancing. I'm so pleased. I'll give you half my kingdom. What do you want? And she asked her mother, her mother says, oh, Give me John's head. What a wicked person. I think of Romans today. What a, what a vicious, wicked person to think, oh, you can have the big farm estate out there and you can have half of his kingdom and ask for John's head. So she was um, devilish, I should say. A wicked, evil person she was. Nevertheless, John is taken into custody. Jesus sees persecution is going to come in the area. And it says here, that's that's... When the Lord knew the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more, he left Judea and went into Galilee. So even early on, he's, he's sort of going to areas where he can minister. And he knows when he's going to be ultimately crucified. He knows that it's coming, but there's a time for it, and the time wasn't there. And if he had stayed in, in Jerusalem area, his ministry wouldn't have been as fruitful. He knew that. So this is why he, he moves there. It just gives some context to it. So the point being, for first uh, characteristic of his ministry is he calls people. And he called them in particular to an intensive ministry at that time. This is when it started. You know, immediately they picked up and followed him. So their intense training and ministry starts here. Okay, let's just, re just visit a little bit the idea that John, the gospel writer, John the evangelist, and Jesus may have been cousins. Does anybody know why there's that theory? Good, I'll teach you something. I didn't really know it until this study. So I need someone to flip to Matthew 27, 55 to 56. John, can you go there for me? And I need someone else to go to Mark 15, 40. Uh, Dave, would you get that for me? And then maybe Tim, would you mind going for me to John nineteen twenty five? And as you guys are flipping there, I, I'm gonna. It's just interesting. I don't think it's necessarily true that they were cousins. But these, if you put these three verses together, all three of these, by the way, are descriptions of the women at the cross, the Marys, the people at the cross. And we're gonna, by process of elimination show why people think maybe they were cousins. So, John, if you go ahead and read 
Matthew 27. And I'm going to write down the names of people at the cross. Call her MM. And Mary, the mother of James and Joseph. Yep. And the mother of Zebedee's children. The mother of Zebedee's children. So this is John's mom. Okay? So we'll say John's and James's mother. So those are three women that they're mentioned. But it also, here's the twist. At the beginning it says many women were there. Okay, so they weren't named. There, there are other women, so just keep that in mind. But over here, many. Okay, so that's Matthew's account. Now let's look at Mark's. Okay, Mark <clears throat> says there were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene, mm -hmm. Mary the mother of James, and the younger of Joseph and Salome. And the, what was that? J O S E S. Yeah, yeah, the mother of James and Joseph, right? And then who's the third one? Um, that was it. Let's see. Was yeah, I, I think... Mary, mother of James, the younger of Joseph and Salome. Yeah, Mary, the mother of James, the younger, and Joseph. So that's one person, and Salome. So there's three people there. That's how I read it. That's how the, a lot of other commentators have read it. Any... It's a confusing. It is a little confusing. James and Joseph are the same, both Gospels. James and Joseph here, yeah, these are parallel phrases. So Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, Mary of, I think she calls him James the last and Joseph. But the assumption is those are the two same people. So you have these two the same, and then this person and this person may be the same. Okay, and then go ahead and read, what was the other account? Um, John. Yeah. Therefore the soldiers did these things, but they, they were standing by the cross of Jesus, his mother, and his mother's sister. So the mother's... Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. So Mary, wife of Clopas, don't know who she is. And you have, you have mom, I'll just call her Mary, Mary mother. And then Mary's sister... Mary, the wife of Clopas, and there was another Mary one? Mary Magdalene. Yeah, Mary Magdalene. Okay, so if you put those all together, some people think that uh, this, Mary, this is um, John and James's mom, who is also Salome, who is also uh, Mary's sister. That's how some people, and that's why some people think, well, if that's the same person, then it seems like John and Jesus may have been cousins. But because you have some outs, you know, there were many other women there, it may not be exactly the way it works out. But it's interesting because, you know, when Jesus is on the cross, he looks at John and, and says, you know, take care of my mother. That would have been natural if he was a part of the family. I don't know who James the last is. I don't know who James the last is. I didn't get time to research that. Anybody else know? I, I don't know who he is. James the son of Alphaeus. There you go. Okay, thank you. So it's, it's just another James. James is a common name. Okay, that's enough time with that. So it's, I think it's possible, but not in stone.
Okay, so, so first he calls people. What else do we see looking at maybe verses? Um, oh, in this verse too. He not only calls people, but he trains them. He disciples them. He, he tr trains, and that's what he's going to make them fishers of men. They have a job right now. They're fishermen. He's going to change them and make them into something else, and he's going to disciple them. That's why he's with them for these three years. It reminds me of the Great Commission. We're all commissioned to do that, <coughs> right? All authority has been given me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations. So he starts making disciples of these two people right here. That's a characteristic of what the gospel will do and what Jesus did. Okay, what's next? Look at verses 21 and 22. Another characteristic of teaching, right? Not only just plain old teaching, teaching with authority. They went into Capernaum immediately. On the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and began to teach. So he calls people, and then this tells us his ministry is characterized mainly by teaching. That is what he's most interested in doing. And you see that, too, at the end of this section when people are crowding him in. I think it's the end of the chapter. Um, basically, he says, we have to leave here. I'm going to go. Let's go to another city so I can preach. This is what I came for. So the teaching is the primary goal of Jesus' ministry here. He goes into Sabbath, goes into the synagogue. That's why he's always going to the synagogue first. That's where the people were collected. That's where they were to hear teaching from the Bible, the Old Testament. So he'd go there and straighten them out and, and teach them what was really happening. So he teaches with authority. They were amazed, this word in, in verse 22, that's only used by Mark. It's used three times in this gospel, but they were awestruck. Okay? His teaching was very different from that stuff the scribes would teach. And they all immediately recognized it. The scribes' teaching is, was known to be um, dry, focused on trivial little things that didn't really matter, it wasn't really relevant to people, it was often controversial to the people that didn't like to really hear it. It was like sitting through a really, really boring lecture that you knew you'd never use this stuff again. Okay, that was sort of the tone of the scribes. And you can even see it in the Gospel of Mark as you read forward to the next few chapters. I mean, what are the scribes constantly doing? Like pecking away. Why, why is he blaspheming? You know, that, that's the first thing they'll say in chapter 2, verse 6, after he heals a paralytic. He's, and he's teaching, why is he blaspheming? How can he say sins are forgiven? Why is he eating with the tax collectors? You know, he's eating with Matthew. Why is he eating with them? Um, he's possessed by a devil, the Beelzebub. And on and on and on it goes throughout Mark's gospel. So those are all the scribes saying those things. And Matthew 5.20 talks about, Jesus says to the people, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees. So he's being a little sarcastic saying, we know how righteous they are. They are so legalistically righteous, the scribes and the Pharisees, implying they're hypocrites. They're hypocritical people. That characterizes them. Uh, what else do the scribes complain about? Your disciples don't fast and pray. They break the tradition of the elders. They don't wash their hands. So on and on. Their, their hypocrisy, they're self-righteous. They're like a little tattletale constantly throughout the, the gospel. I want to read a few other things about the scribes. Mark 12, 38. We'll get to it 
in a few months. In his teaching, he was saying, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like respectful greetings in the marketplaces and cheap seats in the synagogues and places of honor at banquets who devour widows' houses and for appearance sake offer long prayers. These will receive greater condemnation. So there's the scribes for you. In Matthew 16, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go into Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. This is ultimately what they end up doing, right? So they henpeck the whole way, constantly critical, constantly, and ultimately they're pretty happy when Jesus is killed on the cross. And so that's the nature of these scribes he's talking about. You can read Matthew 23 about the scribe, the whole chapter of Matthew 20. Let's go there because it's, it's really um, an indictment of these people. I think it's good to spend a little time understanding them because we're going to see them over and over again from chapter to chapter throughout the book. Um, the chief occupation of the scribe was to just write, copy the law? Is that what they did? That's what they did, and, it, and they also taught because they, they, were, they wrote so much and they copied so much they knew it, and their teaching was like... Um, like I said before, it was just like technical and dry, and it would focus on the letter of the law and didn't really fill. And Mark mentions it didn't have authority. Apparently, the people that were reading Mark's gospel knew what he was talking about. So the people probably were always, I just imagine, a boring lecture by a bad professor, right? And why everyone just dreads going there, and it doesn't really fill you. And I think that's the impression you had. And it seems like when some of the things I just read about Jesus... They all knew they were hypocrites. They, the people knew that they were these self-righteous, legalistic, hypocritical types. Jesus' teaching was much different. But if you were just were to browse through Matthew 23, the whole thing is about um, verse 2. It starts out, The scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. Therefore, all that they tell you, do and observe, but do not do according to their deeds. For they say things and do not do them. So, hypocrites. They tie heavy burdens but they aren't willing to move with so much as a finger. They do their deeds to be noticed by men. I'm going to go through this sort of fast. They love the places of honor. They like the respectful greetings. Uh, they like to be called teacher. Um, verse 13, Woe to you, scribes, hypocrites. You shut off the kingdom of heaven from people. You do not enter in yourselves. And it sort of goes on and on like that. They're blind guides, they're fools, they're blind men. And hypocrites, again. Down at verse 23, I'll just read the last few verses of the chapter. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. So, I just imagine Jesus is here teaching. They see he is this, he is justice, he's mercy. He's the faithfulness. He's the real thing. The time has come, right? The time is at hand. The kingdom of God is here. Here's God speaking the truth, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. These are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside they are full of robbery and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and of the dish so that the outside of it may be clean, become clean also. So this is Jesus' ministry. He's there teaching the inside of the dish. 
right? The real teaching and the real thing that goes right to their heart. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. So you too outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. So I think that makes the point about what the scribes uh, are all about. Seems kind of harsh what Jesus is saying to them, but it's accurate. And we know it's accurate when you see how they progress throughout all the Gospels and what they ultimately, at the end, they're jeering and happy that Christ is dying on the cross. No. They were part of, as I understand it, they were, I mean, you always see them, scribes and Pharisees, Pharisees, so they always seem to be with the Pharisees, and the Pharisees and Sanhedrin were, Sanhedrin was mostly the Sadducees, and some Pharisees, but I think mostly Sadducees, someone can correct me, I think, because the Sadducees were really interested in this political alignment and with Rome, and um, mostly the Sadducees were on the part of the Sanhedrin. Is that... I think so. Well, yeah. I think, yes. I know it had some Pharisees on the Sanhedrin, but mostly it was the politically connected Sadducees. So the scribes speak to the head, and Christ speaks to the heart. Yeah, good way to put it. Yep, I think so. Scribes speak to the head, and Jesus speaks to the heart. I want to, uh, give me one second here, because in Mark, when Jesus is on the cross, it's very poignant to see the scribes and what they say. Um... Well, it's, it's chapter 15, verse 31. I'll just read it. In the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes, were mocking him among themselves and saying, He saves others. He cannot save himself. Let this Christ, the King of Israel, now come down from the cross so that we may see and believe. Mocking him, obviously. Uh, those who were crucified with him were also insulting him. So I think we've rounded out what they're like and where they ultimately go. But the point of today's talk was um, he calls disciples, he trains them, he teaches with authority, unlike others. And then in, any other questions on that? We'll keep going. Verse 30, 23 through 25, what do we see there is a characteristic of Jesus' ministry and really of the power of the gospel uh, Jesus is a ruler of the spiritual world, even almost first, actually. First and foremost, he's a ruler of the spiritual world, and these demons knew it. Uh, there was a man with an unclean spirit in the synagogue crying out, and it's so interesting. He knows. I mean, that, that demon knows that who's right there in front of him. And he says, what business do we have with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. 
So interesting. How, how, how do you so? How do you think he knew? The spirits know, and I, I feel like when Jesus was out in the in the desert being tempted, the devil was there with him, and and all his friends. He told all the demons, "Yeah, I can't get this guy. Jesus is here, so watch out. The the, the Son of God is here. He wasn't tempted, and um, he's coming for you." <laughs> I, I, I sort of that's colloquial, but I think that's what there is some communication among the spiritual world. And that's why they knew he was coming. And for him to say, I don't know why they're saying this. It's almost like, are, they, are the demons just so shocked? They don't know what to say. And they just blurt out, I know who you are. I, I'm dreading this day for you to come here. But I know who you are, Jesus of Nazareth, the Holy One. Um, Jesus rebukes him and says, be quiet and come out of him. He almost always tells the demons to be quiet. So a question for us is, why would... He wants the demons to be quiet. He's saying the truth. Why do you think? What are some ideas as to why Jesus is telling the demons to be quiet when they're proclaiming the truth? His time had not yet come. Yep, I think it's part of it. His time hadn't come. He just... Yes, so why, why would he still tell them to be quiet? I think that's true. His time hadn't come. Well, he told people to be quiet about him as well. Right. I think so, in a general sense, that it's, that's why. His time hadn't come, and he didn't want this broadcast as much. Another twist on that is um, uh, maybe the demons had some insight to know that this might hasten Jesus' death, right? Because they might know that the scribes are out there, the Pharisees are out there, the teachers who are not going to like this teaching um, might hear it. So it's possible that they're trying to hasten along, let everyone know, yeah, here's this... Holy One of God that's come to destroy your whole system that you have of laws and systems and temple worship and sacrifices and all that's going to change. So it's a possibility. Also, the charges that uh, he was working the works of Satan. Yeah. He didn't want that to come out. That's a good point. Yeah. Jesus didn't want that to come out. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, great point. Yeah, I think exactly a good point. Why let the demon speak when Jesus himself is there to speak? Yeah, it would maybe hinder. But in any event, he does rebuke them, and he has authority over the spiritual world. So where did it go? <laughs> this one, I don't know where this one went. We know others have gone into pigs, into yeah. swine. Uh, I don't know. It's floating around waiting to... Well, no, it talks in... Is it uh, prowling around waiting for... Um, waiting for... Yeah, what, what is that? That's in um, Peter... Yeah, your devil, your enemy, the devil, prowls around like, like a lion waiting for someone to devour. So uh, they're still out there, yes. I just had a thought about the whole, maybe part of it was a testimony too, because after he rebukes the demon, they're all amazed and they recognize his authority. So maybe mm-hmm. it was part of God's plan for them to see his authority over Great. the unclean spirit. Great, other point, yep. A clear demonstration that he has authority Yes, we'll see later. Not just in his teaching, but authority over the spiritual world. He 
and that is amazing to them. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think it's also humility because he's paying to serve, and you know, people start again, they want to make him king, especially him doing all these mm -hmm. great and wondrous things. I mean, he wanted to maintain a level of humility. Yes. The humility, and I do think he, you see it in the Gospels, he, Jesus is constantly redirecting their thoughts away from the idea of a, a ruler on earth, a king on earth, and so that may be one reason, right? The point is, he's ruler over the spiritual world. He has authority over the demons. It causes an amazing reaction in verse 27. They were all amazed, astonished, you know, thunderstruck, basically. So that they debated among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. So, the summary I had for that was uh, Jesus' ministry is amazing. I mean, and that's what Mark is painting this picture. I mean, it's just like a kaleidoscope of all these things Jesus is doing right in the very first chapter. It's unambiguous, it's obvious to everyone that the time has come. What else about the gospel and Jesus' message? Verse 28, immediately the news about him spread everywhere into all the surrounding districts. So it spreads everywhere. The, the, Jesus' message, the gospel, it spreads everywhere. It goes ultimately into the whole earth. And so I just think in those first, really those 14 verses from 14 to 28, you've got a great summary of what the gospel does and what his ministry really for the next 15 chapters is about it's it's all these things he he does these same things for fifteen chapters. Excuse me, Tim. Yes. <laughs> but demons are not really talked about in the Old Testament, are they? I mean, mm. is it really the first time you really get acquainted with demons around? It's the f I don't think it's the first time. Well, Job, the devil, is there. Mm -hmm. um, I can't think of other Old Testament. Uh, so are they sort of released when Jesus? Yes, I think, well, that's a whole other, I'm glad you brought it up because I, I have an idea about that. I don't think we see demons now. Maybe in some other third world countries and stuff, you hear about demons. But absolutely, I believe, I mean, everywhere Jesus goes, the demons. It's because the time is here. This is a really historical time. The devil brought out all his forces, and I think it's unique. Yes, I think the demon possession of people is very concentrated and um, elevated at this time, because I don't think you see him as much you don't anymore. Think there's demons around here now with all the violence and stupid things that are going on. I think there's demons because Peter, we just says that they're prowling. That he's prowling around like a lion, waiting for people to devour. So for sure they're there. Personally, I put a lot of this evil up to what Shane talked about today. It's it's the flesh. It's it's in it's common. It's common to unsaved people. That's how I see it. Um, did you listen to last week, too? I mean, last week and this week, it really paints a picture of where we go without God. Yeah. It's really disturbing and um, evil, heartless, foolish, all that. Can I ask a question? You just mentioned that we should have talked about this occurs more in third world Oh, just because I've heard of it. I've heard stories of people that go to Haiti or... Um, Africa and, and just stories of sort of demon possession. That's that's about as deep as I can go. I don't have any other strong opinion about that. I think it's a lot of places where there's a lot more religious activity going on, like um, Hinduism or Buddhism or 
just lots of God, lots of different types of worship. That's mm-hmm. where you tend to see more shamanic like activity. Even in Africa, mm-hmm. they have tribal religions yeah. and they worship different gods. Mm-hmm. So my thought has always been that Satan is a schemer. Not to undermine what you said. I do think yeah. it's our flesh, but but um, I think Satan is a schemer and he knows how to attack different cultures and different people to yeah. completely get them off track. And here we make fun of them. Mm-hmm. We make fun of uh, yes. demonic activity and act like it's not a big deal <clears throat> that it's funny or it's mm-hmm. a thrill instead of the real- feared like other cultures do actually fear it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so. yeah, Asian talks about having the whole armor of God and you've got to keep it. I mean, they, they say it talks about it being put on one for salvation, but it's mm-hmm. we are at war. Yeah, the spiritual war is the most important. And, yeah, and Satan does. I mean, he affects our world system, which affects the flesh. And, mm-hmm. you know, Satan's a demon, but I'm sure he uses mm-hmm. his, his army. Yeah, I mean, the, the apocalyptic picture of the ultimate battle is the demonic, spiritual. There's quite a lot of uh, seducing demonic activity in the Catholic Church. Mm-hmm. I take your, I, I believe you. Yes, I take your the Catholic Church. I know that they're marked by a lot of exorcism activity, and but I, I claim a little ignorance on on it, so I apologize. Brady, you were gonna say? Yeah, I mean, when you already see this, you know, you've got these cultures, many many cultures are already believing in the spiritual world. Like Satan can fly under the radar there and and possess people because they already believe mm-hmm. spirits. And here, it, in here, it's almost like we're trying to kill the the message. It would be self destructive for for there to be real supernatural manifestation of that. Because here, you know, it's all about evolution and the use mm-hmm. of knowledge and science, and and so it would um, anyway. But that's I think we could all agree that, you know, it says in the Bible, be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion waiting for people to devour. So they exist for sure, right? There's no doubt about it. And I do think, too, the Christian cannot be indwelt by a demon. No way. The Holy Spirit is in us, and we're his, and so he won't let that happen. Aside from that, I think they're Maybe we'll talk about it. I'll do some research and bring it back to us next time.